it is time. Yes! Maybe. Yes, sir! From their little studio in South Africa, it's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. That's right. A studio so small, I can literally read Dylan Rogers' mind. So what am I thinking? Absolutely nothing. So I'm the long of it. I am the short of it. My name is Simon Hill. And I'm Dylan Rogers. I am about three foot seven. Ian Woosnam is a giant compared to me. And I'm about 6'11", so I'm more the Chris Wood type. <laughs> yeah. This is the long and the short of it. It is what you think it is. It's a golf podcast. We are both very fortunate enough to work in media and both really, really like golf. So we thought, heck, let's make a golf podcast. And give us an excuse to chat to some of the biggest names in golf and to pick their brains about the game, their careers, and uh, their thoughts on on the game that we love so much. And I, I mean, I'm blowing our trumpet here, but it is our podcast. And I really don't think we could have done much better than the guest that we have on today. So Nick Felder... Welcome to the long and short of it. It's it's great to have you on. I just want to know, as we kick it off, where do you stand on the whole sir thing? Do you prefer just a straight neck or how does it work with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been, um, we're now 11 years, so I like it. Um, and I'm also, you know, some people give you a hard time. Who the hell do you think you are calling? It? Well, the bottom line is, you know, you're asked by your government to uphold this tradition. And this tradition started in... 1357 and as i say to people that's not three minutes to two yeah after officially i'm cynic i like being called cynic i think that so, you know hotels always when i arrive in hotels in america they always say oh sir falder and i swear and i say no if you want to use it say cynic it's it's actually nicer and it's easier and uh so um but i'm i'm cool either way if somebody doesn't like saying it, call me Nick, call me, as long as you don't call me Susan, that's <laughs> fine. So, um, how, how are you? Where are you? Uh, I'm, I presume you flits between. Where am I right now? Yeah, where are you at the moment? Yeah, I'm in uh, Windsor, England, and it's the first time I've left America because I, you know, because all the obviously restrictions, America shut down and then slowly they open things up, you know, and they clarify some things. So finally, I'm, you know, I have a an O visa. Uh, that's how I do my work in America. So I was finally able to return back to America. We learned that, I guess, a couple of months ago. So to fit with my schedule, you know, I wanted to come over. I haven't seen my children. <laughs> I you know, haven't seen Matthew, my son, since end of January. And I, so I went, you know, um, so saw him yesterday. And I haven't seen my daughter, Georgia, since I think last November. And I'm seeing her after this interview. She's coming over for lunch. So finally... Um, it's pretty harsh, isn't it? Don't realise. Um, I haven't seen my kids for a year. Um, you know, we went into lockdown. We were fortunate. We were in, um, you know, Ponte Vedra. I was calling the, the players when they shut everything down that Thursday. And then, and then, they, then they, as you know, the governments all announced, well, we better all go in lockdown. And so we stayed at the beach, very fortunate, for five. We just stayed there five weeks, didn't see anybody. I didn't see my daughter, uh, Emma, who was in Orlando, so we, so we both said, well, we've been really strict, so we can now see each other. So we we've taken this seriously, um, you know, stay social distance, you know, going to tournaments. So we were only then amazing. We called the golf from Orlando. They made that decision, so that was very clever. So we could we called uh, all the tournaments from Orlando. And I've only been to the two majors, uh, you know, the PGA and the 
then the US Open, and obviously going to Augusta. We've lived a pretty tight little group. You know, we obviously had a nice pod of working with Ian Baker Finch and Frank Nobolo, and we managed to have, we actually had a very good little little lifestyle going because we would work through the week and then between the three houses, uh, and Trevor Inwoman as well. So between us, we four, we bounced around Saturday nights. We were having, uh, you know, parties, we wouldn't call them parties, dinners. So um, where everybody else was in serious lockdowns, so they were very jealous of what we were up to. So uh, we managed to get through it quite well. So, yeah, so I was wondering about your your, your COVID-19 experience, Nick. Uh, it, it sounds quite trying. Yeah, very tough. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I think the trying, the, 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 the talking to golf has been great to be at home. It's like having a day job. I, would, I could drive to the golf, to the golf chances studios, you know, in the, get in there, do my little bit of research and talk golf or whatever, three to six hours and then come home. So that was, you know, it's, it's shaken up the world, the, the new the new possibilities but yeah but it was weird obviously not being able to see my my big kids so um so finally that's why i've come over to do it so so um you know i'm i'm here for about 10 days and then i'll head back to america to get ready for the masters yeah uh, well, they must be delighted to see you i presume the pocket money's run out by now <laughs> absolutely yeah that's just yeah <laughs> It's bank with dad. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. But, I mean, Nick, are, I your, I hope- are your kids, are they are they into golf at all, having a dad like you? Oh, well, Matthew is. my my boy, But the girls, no, uh, which is a shame because um, I think Georgia does sneak to the driving range. My eldest daughter, Natalie, is just, what, about nearly what, three months ago, made me a uh, a, a granddad, so that's great. So oh, congrats! She, yeah, so she's busy looking after little one, and um, so Matthew plays golf. He's not—he's about a six handicap, and um, so we play golf as much as we can. Um, George and no, and I'm actually giving lessons to Emma right now because she's a horse rider, and that's quite—and it's good because I'm. Trying to break the ice for her, so because typically when I'm watching her, she hits it bad, and when I'm not, look, she's oh, it's always the same. Every time you're not watching me, I hit it good. But she was, I love it when I get excited. She hits three in a row, and she gets all excited. And before that, I said, oh, I hate this game. This is too <laughs> difficult. I said, well, just just wait. You get a couple airborne, and then she does, and then she screams and says, oh, that's great. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. So you know, that's the sign. That's the tough thing about golf. Um, as simple as that, getting the airborne. Once you've broken the ice to get to being able to do that, then you can start thinking, ah, I can actually progress. But uh, as we know, it's a it's a discipline. It's a tough game. Uh, Nick, are you uh, you teaching the daughter um, the Felder formula, or was that uh, something specific to a different? Yeah, type of absolutely. The, yeah, no Felder formula. Shaking hands, you know, knocking the ball away. Shake hands. It's funny. I I I I can experiment on her what really does work and how to paint some pictures and uh, it's very interesting that it's a tough game that we can't seem to move this just this good old weight transference is the hardest blooming things for you watch people when you say move your weight to your right foot and the different ways they bend and twist their body it's like uh, so you're trying to give them an image of what it might be you know throwing a medicine ball or, or swinging a 
can you swing a bucket of water without spilling it on the takeaway and all sorts of things like that. So some people work in pictures, some work in words, some neither. So it's, it's quite interesting to try and help people. Well, just to, just tell us a little bit about this uh, this, this, this Felder formula, the, the Nick, because I know it's a, it's a relatively new concept. You've been working on with a, the range yeah. a range of industry pro- professionals, such as such as fit, fitness coaches. I know you've done some work with Gary Player. Yeah. What? How would you summarise exactly what the Felder formula is? Because I believe it's going to be officially launched after the Masters. Is that right? No, we're we're out there. You know, we've been we've been uh, recording content for a year now and so I so how it all started I was going to Montana last year and and I suddenly as I'm flying to to there I suddenly thought why don't I bring a camera crew and I'll go and play around a golf and just keep talking that's got to be the easiest thing in the world for me to you know talk and hit a golf shot and play around a golf so I did that and it was such an easy way to get content for me and then I've always wanted to, we know now, you've got to be good physically. If you can learn, you should be learning physically first how to move your body, as I described, weight transference, teaching people the easy way to learn weight transference. And then obviously you need a mental side as well later So because everybody talks in, what do you want to do? I don't want to slice it. So, you know, and I then say, so what are your picture? You say, I don't want to slice it into the trees. So what did you see? Oh, yeah, I saw the ball go slicing into the trees. Yeah, exactly. So it's amazing we don't know how to talk to ourselves. The great word don't. I, you know, don't want this. I don't want that. So guess what you get? So um, so I've got great friends now. You know, I've obviously got Garth, Garth Milne from South Africa. I met him. um, Are we coming up to four years now? Yeah, yeah, I think it's that long, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when I played down in South Africa. I came down and I was all keen because I thought and sure enough I get all, I was sitting there getting some treatment off him and uh, and I said, hey, I need some stuff for me at my age. I still want to be able to swing it and so he started on you know, I guess we call it the new stuff the, the, the modern the modern science of, of tuning muscles for, for specifically for golf. So and you know we made we made friends as well. So I would see him every time he come this way, and then we and then I started talking about what I wanted to do with Felder Ford, and he's full on. So we recorded a couple of weeks ago when he was in America for the Open. We did our instructional piece, so that was great. And we spent, of course, a day with Gary. Um, we took Gary to the gym, and that was, of course, hilarious. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, yeah. And I've got also another great friend. I've had a great friend from Sweden, Shellen Hager, who's the man who, you know, helped Annika way back to overcome her fears and sowed the seeds. You know, the, the girl golfers said, they would say, what's a great round of golf? And they would say, well, you know, maybe a, maybe a 68 would be fantastic. Uh, and then he, he started to teach them, you know, well, why can't you shoot a 54? And then it was the, that was the theory. Because then Annika, then she shoots a 59. So... Hey, it's sowing the seeds, good positive pictures. You know, we we uh, we live in pictures, and you've got to you know, learn to use those on the golf course. So, I want to put that together. And as I've got older, I I go for what, okay. What do I really need? So sometimes I might go to the range and I go, God, I haven't hit balls for a month or five weeks because I've been on the road. So I go, What do I want? And I say, Well, let's, let's just get it airborne. 
How high can I hit it? So you hit it high. How low can I hit it? Start with that. And then, and then okay, so now how do I, what, what's the minimum I've got to do to make this ball fade? And you find a few moves. And it and I said, what have I got, the minimum I've got to do to make it draw? So I don't look for any fancy stuff. And then it's, it's taught me how to, and I'm still, I love the modern stuff. You know, I love everybody's got a launch monitor and they can see, you know, the real fine tune. But I also really love teaching yourself on a ball flight. Mm. There's no harm in understanding why, how to make, and a lot of people, see the other way I look at it for the kids, a lot of people say, I don't want to slide it and I don't want it to go left. And I say, well, make it go to the right intentionally and make it go to the left. And then you've automatically stopped the other way but in a more, more positive way. If you say, I don't want it to go right, guess where it goes? It goes right. But if you say, I want it to go to the right, because obviously you're protecting the left side, that's a different way of thinking about it and doing it. So I'm, that's what I like to try and teach. Make the golf ball do something, rather than just hit it and hope for it. Actually, you know, physically steer it or mentally steer it in a certain direction. So, or picture it in a doing. So there's different ways of making the golf ball go where you want it to go. And it might be simple, get it high and get it low. And that can change people's releases and all sorts of things, swing patterns completely, just hit it high and low. So the great thing about a game is if you look at um, swings from Walter Hagen, which are 100 years old now, that is, I'd, I'd, I'd pay a king's ransom for that swing right now. Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic, but it's 100 years old, so it hasn't changed. It's, it's basically our, our um, communication of how we presented different ways of swinging it. But those guys thought, it's thought, well, there's a club head, there's a ball, there's a shaft. How do I swing this club to hit this ball? That was it. And we've got, boy, we got complicated over the last 30 years. You know, everybody's trying to outdo everybody with their teaching method. So the, so the Faldo formula is very much about mind, body, and swing. But tell me, Nick, what was it like being in the gym with Gary Player? Did you embarrass yourself? Yeah. So we, we knew what might happen. It was funny. <laughs> so, yeah, Gary does 1,200 sit-ups, as uh, you know. We're well aware, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Gary does 12. So we so I, I, like, I get on great with Gary. And I can, t- you know... I got so much respect for these guys and you know, Gary and Jack and obviously Arnold when he was around that, you know, I can, you can tease them. So I, so, so out of respect, I like to tease people. <laughs> so I knew that I said, I'm going to tell him after he's done 1200 sit ups that, that he's doing them all wrong. He's, he's, he's using the wrong <laughs> muscles for golf. So, <laughs> so I wanted to say to him, you've been, Gary, you've done, you've been doing it all wrong for the last 50 years. So. So sure enough, he does his sit-ups, and they're really list the, the, the mini crunches are not sit-ups, they're not a trip. And so then Gar says, "Well," and he and he hooks his feet under, so he's actually using his quads to lift himself up. <laughs> so when we took his so when we took his legs away, and he couldn't use his legs, he couldn't get up. Poor buggy, he's huffing and puffing, <laughs> and he, and so he said, "Well, this is the new sit-up, Gary. You know, with your no legs, and you pull yourself up." And he's like, "Oh." And the other great thing, Gary does facial expressions to make, because it's hard and it's tough, and he grinds his face and pulls his face. <laughs> and we were doing eye exercises as well. We were teaching him. And he's and just moving his eyes around. He's, he's, he's gritting his teeth and pulling his mouth around. You know, it's cool. And I said, I'm laughing, mate. 
laughing my head off because he's, you know, he's, he's, he's grinding on just doing eye exercise. We thought it was hilarious. And then he stopped for a moment because Garth got him an extra three inches of backswing. And then he, he, and I had a great moment when he put his hand on his chin and he looked at that great look and he goes, how did you do that? And it was all quiet. And he just looked, and that was the best moment for me because he suddenly, it was no Gary player giving you the, a full story. You know, that it yeah. was just, he was stunned, stunned to silence for, for about one second. <laughs> how, how did you, how did you do that? So there was a great moment because he couldn't believe that the science, so he really saw the science, the new science that we know, how to yeah. make a, your backswing better and smooth your body work. It was fun. It was great. And we told stories and, you know, I've got great, that man was a huge inspiration for me. And I said to him, you know, I was the kid who read the, you know, Gary Player spent a whole morning in the bunker, hitting bunker shots. Of course, I went and did that and uh, <laughs> and moved all the sand on the green. And, of course, I got into big trouble for that. So um, he, was a, he was a great inspiration for me. Yeah, and I think that actually leads us quite nicely into, you know, how you began the game. And I found it, I, you know, I read your book and it was such a, it was such a revelation to find out how you actually got into golf and, and, and how quickly you progressed. And, I, and I'd like to chat to you about that a little yeah. bit. You know, you started the game at, at a very, I think, a late age. You started at 14 and by, yeah. by 20, you were playing in, a, in Ryder Cups. I mean, was it just sheer determination yeah. and vision? Is that, what, is that what got you there? Well, well, yeah. So, yes, I started television. I, w- I was watching the Masters, uh, you know, the 71 Masters, and it wasn't... Jack didn't win it, but of course he was featured, and I thought, wow, that looks nice. You know, I was looking... I had a simple role. I wanted an outdoor job, and I wanted to be my own boss. That was my first... Funny, my two roles. And I was even thinking of the Forestry Commission. I'm thinking, well, that'd be cool to go like to Canada, Canada or somewhere. Yeah. A lumberjack. Yeah, tech. something like... <laughs> Yeah, lumberjack. Yeah, honestly, yeah, I, I can see you in one of those shirts. I think you'd look really great. And even la- yeah, and even landscape gardening, which is quite a, makes sense because you know you know the, the design company now. But you so fitted, I mean, generally you fitted more- carpets for a while as well. Oh yeah, well I, I, well, I yeah. So when I started golf, I was I was very fortunate. I you know I practiced like well I was at school every evening and and weekends and that sort of thing. And I eventually joined the club. And, you know, um, then, event, then the big breakthrough, I got a locker at the club so I could, could leave my clubs. At the, I used to put my, tie my clubs to the front of my bike. And so then I eventually got a locker and my clubs could stay at there. So anyway, bottom line was, you know, I started, basically I played my first round of golf at 14. I fell in love with golf. I made the decision at 15 I wanted to be a pro golfer. I left school at 16 and, and I literally went to the practice ground and I beat golf balls and... And then, so that's, um, so that's 73. And then, so by 1975, and then start winning everything, you know, win the English amateur, the British youth, the county champion, the champion of champions, all sorts of things. And I, by the end of the year, you know, Sandy Lyle and I were the only two golfers that were plus one in the old system of handicap in the whole country. So, uh, and then very quickly, you know, I tried university in America and I didn't like it. I came back. I won another tournament. It was like nobody cared. So they said, well, what about turning pro? So I, in those days, you had to announce you were turning professional. And, you know, and you played. Then the first six months you had to play, you couldn't take any prize money. You could only take prize money from national opens. So that was big because I finished 
fifth or third, fifth at the German Open and won five hundred pounds. So I played my first season in nineteen seventy six and uh, won like two thousand, just over two thousand pounds. My first goal was to finish in the top sixty of the order of merit, and I finished fifty eighth. And that, you know, that meant I was exempt. So I didn't have to. Do, I did a few of those Monday qualifiers, which are hard work, and. Um, so that was it. So I, and then, so the next year, seventy-seven was you know deemed a Ryder Cup year. You know, it's you know odd years. So that was my next goal. I wanted to make the team. So I played. Uh, you know, I finished eighth or something on the order of merit the next year, um, and made the Ryder Cup team. And so then I had an unbelievable Ryder Cup. My first one. Um, you know, I played with Peter Oosthuis. We won our first match. And then in the second match, I played Jack and Nicholas and Ray Floyd. And we beat them. And so, and then, and then in the singles, I played Tom Watson and he was the open champion and I beat him as well. So I won my three matches. We only played three that year because they didn't want us to get thrashed. That was the end of the just Great Britain versus America. Then they went to Europe, of course. So, so now, I, as I said, I have great respect for Jack. So now I remind him that I beat him in the Ryder Cup. <laughs> and the funny bit was, I haven't won a 72-hole tournament yet. <laughs> I'd only won a 36-hole tournament and a 54-hole tournament. So I won a 72. I won our PGA at Birkdale in 78. So how, how about that? Six years after starting golf, I beat Jack, the man who inspired me to take up golf, and I haven't even won a 72-hole tournament. So it was pretty crazy. But you, but it was pure it was pure passion. I think it's, it's past dedication. I went to the practice ground. I drove down there. I rode down there every morning. Uh, you know, I'd get there by about 8.15, and then I would be on the range by 8.30, and I'd hit balls all morning till 12 o'clock on the little ditty range. And then I would then have my sandwiches, and I, did, and I made the same cheese and pickle sandwiches for two years, same, literally the same food. And then I would play in the afternoon, usually 95% on my own with my imaginary friends. So I used to play with against Jack and Arnold and <laughs> Gary and Lee and, and Johnny Miller and Weisskopf. So those are six swings I used to copy. And um, and that was it. So I did. So it was pure passion. And I would then come home, it was dark. And I'd bowl up when I was hungry. So my mother knew, you know, I'd... <laughs> I'd roll up as soon as the food went on the table, and that, and that's what I did for years, two years before I then ventured out on tour. But tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about your parents and their approach to you deciding. Okay, golf is what I want to do because there was that four pound child grant, or you could go and be an apprentice yeah, and start that's working. Funny. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, yeah that, well, that's funny. So, um, you know, Dad was a accountant um mum was a dressmaker and um they didn't know anything about it what i was doing and they trusted me to do this and then when i said well i want to leave school at 16 and take up golf i mean they amazing decision they spoke to my club pro ian Connolly, and he and he must have said well yeah he's got something special and um and so i looked at it so an assistant's job was paying four pounds a week which which meant, but the bottom line is that meant you're going to sit in the pro shop, twiddling your thumbs, and then hit a few. You know, so my dad said, "Well, at that time, he said I get four pounds a week child allowance for you." So he said, um, 
I'm going to lose that if you then go and work at four pounds a week. So he said, I might as well keep you. I thought I was very loving of my father. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so as yeah, I carried on, that's how I stayed an amateur golfer. And, and then mum obviously drove me to events to start off with until I then passed my driving license in early of 75. Yeah. And early spring of 75, I started driving myself got the very first time i drove the car to a tournament it it snowed on the way home oh my god so i've just passed my test and it's now snowing i'll never forget that driving down the road and i made sure i put my wheels i put my tires on the cat side so i could hear it so i could hear it go <laughs> dun, 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 dun. so i knew i was in the middle of the road that's how scary it was so but i just won the tournament i played at royston and i won the tournament in snow it snowed in the afternoon and i won it hilarious so um but that was it. That was my start of my amateur golf. I literally, had, we had nothing. I had a bag of golf balls and a, and a set of clubs, um, a secondhand set of clubs, and that was it. That's how I started. Amazing. So do you think kids today, you know, would be able to do it the way you did it, or is it just, I mean, nowadays, you kind of know, you pick up a club at three, four years old, and you can see this kid's got talent. Okay, we're going to groom him. This guy's going to be a golfer and, and off you go. Because you played a lot of other sports as well. And you were, you know, you were a really good swimmer. I mean, you tried yeah. pretty much everything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was a good sport, a very good sportsman. You know, apart from gymnastics, um, you know, I played everything at school. I was in every team, um, usually for the year above me as well. So, you know, I love my sport. And it's interesting, you know, you know, Jack was the same. Jack played all different sports. You know, we were talking about the fitness from the past. You know, Jack didn't go to the gym. Um, you know, I'm sure we're going to get onto the Bryson story, but you know, Jack didn't go to the gym. And I talked to Rod Laver, and he said we never went to the gym; we just played tennis. And I was, and I was the same to get to get stronger at golf. You hit more golf balls. You hit balls out the rough. I mean, that's how you got stronger for golf. I mean, that's so it's a completely different science now. So you know, it's for kids now. It's very well right now in you know 2020 or the last 10 years or so, um, very difficult to get them their attention because. Um, you know, you've got a phone and you get instant feedback from whatever you're doing. So their attention span. And as I said, teaching a kid to get a golf ball airborne. And if you sure you, if you don't have some, some kind of help, some little bit of formal coaching to at least break the ice, as I call it, you know, to get the thing airborne, um, because it's discipline. Our game's discipline. And, it, and it, I would have to say, it, kids are struggling with discipline right now. Um, you know, you tell them to stand here and point your feet like that, and I can't be bothered. And you're like, okay, fine. So I want to do it my way. And you go say, fine, you do it your way, and they last five minutes, and that's it. So it's a tough game because you've got to be disciplined to, for somebody to be in your ear and say, I want you to stand like this. I want you to put your body here. I want you to swing your arms like this, you know, and, and then you, and then you miss the darn thing. And it, and you, so it, it takes time, doesn't it? Our game's tough. So, but once you break it, obviously then it's fantastic because you can keep improving and learning more. You learn something every single day, which is fantastic. Nick, you talk about doing it your own way. And, and obviously, as you, as you touched on, Bryson DeChambeau is very much doing it his own way. I, I spent some time with Bryson before we, after, after lockdown and every turn, I, I, I had a day with him in, in Texas for my show. You know, and he explained, he started with, you know, he had a, he had a bad back. 
She says, so I, I started on the physical thing to get his back strong enough, and that took a year. Okay, so there's commitment, there's, isn't it? There's discipline, not five minutes, a year for him to get his back sorted out. And then he thought about, you know, because he's a, the mad scientist, he then thought about, well, how do I hit a golf ball further? So these, how, so by the bottom line, what he's doing is, is how can I take a long driving champion skills so hitting up 400 yards and bring it onto a golf course with touch? So that's, you know, so that's what he's done. So he's training physically unbelievably hard, doing some really amazing lifting and what have you. But he's he's doing it under the guidance so he understands every single muscle in his body. He says, and if I stress out a muscle, I know how to, um, you know, repair it and all this sort of thing. So he said, I wanted to get stronger to hit a goal, but, but maintain my touch. So he would do you know, his goal through the day, and then he'd do his weightlifting at night, and then he'd come back the next day. So he said to me, he has lifted and putt, done putting every single day. So, main, so he's maintaining touch as well as strength. So he's now, obviously, it's become a huge thing because obviously he, had, he brings the science to it and his character. And, yes, yeah, suddenly there's a guy on the range, and I saw him in um, – that's when I saw him in uh, – the players in where were we in in March, and I was right there when he was smacking it, and I'm laughing. I'm saying, "You're doing this the day before the tournament," and uh, uh, oh, this was Tuesday, and he's thrashing it, and he didn't, and he turns to, he's got 201 miles an hour ball speed, so that's off the Incredible. charts, isn't it? Crazy. Said, so how do you how do you get ready for the goal? I said, "How can you use it at the players? I mean, you can't use this at the players." So, so that's when it kind of started. And um, then it's become a huge thing because suddenly there's a man who can get it 350 through the air. Um, so he's taken a lot of flack for it because, you know, he's standing up at 400-yard holes and knocking it up front edge of the green. And so, yeah, look at all these comments. But what has he done? He's, he's found a physical way to hit a golf ball further, as far as possible, or maybe not as far he wants to do it further, I'm sure. He's now getting the technical way. You know, he's now looking at his equipment. I was thinking about this morning. So if, if, a, if a shot putter or a javelin person, you know, found a way to train differently for their sport and then suddenly could throw it five yards further than anybody else, we'd all say that's unbelievable. This man's an incredible athlete. But, you know, he's, getting a, he's taken a lot of flat because we have a, such a traditional game that you're not meant to play golf like that. You're meant to hit it down the fairway between the bunkers and then hit a lovely little approach to the green. And, and then if you've done nicely, you hold the putt. If you haven't, you two putt and you move on. But this guy said, no, I'll just knock it on the green. I'll cut the corner and knock it on the green. Yeah. And we're all like, well, that's not, that's not cricket, I say. That's not allowed. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I mean, he's raised the bar maybe, but he's kind of forcing the other top guys to think about the way that they approach their game. All of a sudden, you see Rory McIlroy with the track man out in the range showing what he's getting his ball speed up to. I mean, he's definitely yeah, forcing no, the guys yeah, to but think. Hang on, we've been always... Hang on, let's go back. Seve did this. Seve, that was his attitude. His, his, his brothers or his, his uh, uncle said to him, I was busy. Well, I drive as far as I can. I don't care if I'm in the roughest. As long, I, I try to get as close to the green as possible. Okay, that's what Seve was doing. But was close. But a big drive then was 280 to three. Then Greg comes along and hits it a bit straighter and was started hitting it 300. You know, so that he was a great driver of the ball. And then John Daly appeared. Then suddenly you're playing with John Daly, and I'm never. I play with John at a Honda. And he had 250 to the hole, and he hits an iron into the breeze, <laughs> pin high. 
And you're like, what the heck? And then you, and so that started. And then Cabrera could hit it a mile. You know, so there's always been golfers doing it. And then, and then Tiger comes along because then Tiger hits driver nine iron to 15 at, uh, at the Masters. And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, golf's got to change. And so they put tees, you know, Augusta National suddenly goes 600 yards longer. Um, to, to Tiger prove a golf course because he could hit it a mile. And then people have caught up with Tiger and now they've passed him. You know, and there's, there, there, it wasn't long ago. So this amazing thing. So it's a combination of, it's very much a combination of equipment. You know, it's, it's marrying the golf ball to the club face, to the shaft, to then you understanding your launch angles and everything, okay? And then, so that's the science of it. And then you're now adding the physical side. The guys are, are training to be a faster athlete for golf. Before it was like swing with tempo and style and grace. Now it's how quickly can you swing, move your body to hit a golf ball a long way. The, you know, the crazy thing is, um, I think the longest at the US Open was Yoki Neiman. Okay, a skinny kid. Yeah. And he was hitting it out there with a long, little long runner. So I believe there were six people who actually hit it longer than Bryson at the US Open. I saw that little tweet the other day. Um, but, you know, Bryson's taking all the, the, the flat because he can get it 350. You know, so they, I was on the range not long ago for TV. I go down and say, so what do you carry? Oh, you know, 295, 300. And I said, if you lean on it, yeah, I can get 310s. So that was about four years ago. And then suddenly, Rory and Dustin are like, you're kidding me. Now I can get it 320 through the air. So there's the 320 club. There's quite a few guys get it 320 through the air. And then suddenly Bryson's come along and it's, can get it 350 through the air. So, hey, we've, we've been doing this for the last 40 years. There's always been a goal. I mean, Sam Sneed, I'm sure, was longer, was, was an incredible athlete. Um, could probably hit it further than anybody. There's always been somebody with their just with their skills, but now we've added the science to it. One thing I've noticed, which is pretty obvious, the only way you can hit a 50-degree driver and launch it in the air is you tee it up three inches off the ground. So I started saying, well, if they had no tee pegs, if we banned tee pegs, what would you have to drive with? Well, you'd have to drive with a three-wood to start off with, and then the manufacturers would, would design a driver that probably looked more like a pancake, you know, so you could get the thing airborne or do you or do we change the size of the face of the driver that's the other thing and a very simple fix would be really simple fix was if we had the longer you're the longest t-peg you're a pro was allowed would be in say an inch well but then the ball is only going to be three quarters of an inch maybe less maybe seven eighths of an inch so you can only just tear up a you know finger width and then then you couldn't then my argument is let's bring back skill. If a guy's skilled enough to hit a ball, let's say a driver off the deck and he can still hit it 320 down the fairway, well, good on him. But if he can do it on a Sunday afternoon to win, that would be real good entertainment. <laughs> if a guy's good enough to drive on the back nine with the ball off the ground, off the deck, because we all, we all deem that as one of the hardest shots in golf, yeah, isn't it, yeah. to drive yeah. off the deck? So... Why not make it really skillful, you know? And then there may be other players who say, hey, I can't hit it as far as Bryson, but I can hit a drive off the deck beautifully all day long with my swing so darn good. I don't know. It's just a, one of my crazy... Sim it's a simple fix or suggestion 
I'd love them to play a tournament where they they gave them all a seven eighths of an inch tee peg and say, okay, now what are you going to do? Now how are you going to play? Yes, yeah, just you can't tee it up. But yeah. Just yeah, just listening to you chat there, though. I mean, I'm assuming that you're saying that there is a, I don't know if you call it a problem, but it, it does need to be rectified. Everybody wants to hit a golf ball further. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. You, you give me you give me one person who says oh, I don't want to hit it further. Everybody wants to hit it further. So you've now suddenly somebody somebody has come along and applied the science of equipment with the science we understand about the human body. So. Wow. And now we're all screaming, going, well, this is ridiculous because he's, he's, you know, if he goes and play, we were saying if you played St. Andrews and you got the, the wind right, downwind, right, you could, you could actually get it close. You could drive really, because John Daly did it, downwind on number two. I mean, that's a huge par four. You can get to the front edge. Yeah. You can obviously hit the third. Um, four, no, far to par five. Um, six, you could get very close. Seven, you could probably get it on very close to the green now. Nine, you can drive. Ten, you can drive. Twelve, you can drive. If you get it downwind, possibly at 15, you might get very close now. Sixteen, if you were daft enough, you could give it a go. And, of course, 18. So there's nine holes you could get very close to the green. Very, And if you were really crazy, you might even downwind think about hopping it over the burn at the first. If you could carry it 350 and get the big right bounce... You might skip over the burn. Okay, that would be crazy. <laughs> so there's possibly, on the right wind, there's nine, possibly nine holes where you can get too close to the green in less than the standard average of two shots, you know. So that is going to cause a ruckus. That really will be, you know, the last thing we want is somebody going, you know, tearing dear old St. Andrews apart. So, but, you know, he's done it. With uh, within the laws and the physical, so you can't blame anything on that. I, um, you know, I'm. I say, good luck to him. He's, and if anybody, you know, it, it's so it, it's going to change the game. I mean, so the only way we can do it is actually make the equipment tougher to hit. And you know, the driver face has got to come. We've just got to bring back skill. I mean, when you look at our woods, the size of our woods and our five woods, our five wood was only, the face was only one and a half times the width of a golf ball. You get a little, I got my little persimmon five wood that I carried and your three wood. I mean, that the insert, the insert was smaller than the, than the golf ball, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It's narrower than the golf ball. Yeah, and that's what we used. So as we said, you know, when you miss hit, um, when you miss hit a persimmon back in that time, it went nowhere. Uh, we've got the research on it now. That was the difference. And so the difference now is you don't miss hit a shot because the face and the technology and they've got the torque right and everything with the shaft, marrying the shaft to the head. Um, you remember when you used to do the slow-mo of a, of a driver head hitting a golf ball yeah, and the yeah. face used to wobble, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Remember, and it face, it, it's lost that now. You look when we do the super slow-mo, but, you know, I just go, freaking hell, the face is so stable now. Because that's all because of the, you know, centrifugal forces and all that sort of thing and how, you know, there's a tremendous amount of torque of that head's moving at 130 miles an hour now and, you know, the power into the shaft. So all of the science, you know, we're like a Formula One car now. We're going faster and faster, fine-tuning everything. But Dustin Johnson is training that way. 
He did, he's been doing a Brooks. They've been doing Olympic lifting for 10 years. That's how he hits it, 320 through the air. Um, and so that is, that is how pro golf has changed. So if you want to build a true pro golf course, it has to be that with a bit of bounce. It has to be 8,000 yards. If you want them to hit a drive and a four, three iron onto a, a green, well, the drive's going 350 and the blimmin' and the, and the two, four iron's going 240, isn't it, through the air? So there's your there's your six hundred yard yeah, four. Yeah, yeah. That's the that's so to be honest, that's the way the game is. So we either build pro courses, you have a pro tee, but the this great shame is we have these wonderful classic courses, the great courses from all the famous courses are seven thousand two hundred yards. So they're just now you can drive up to the front of the green. Um that is how the game's changed. So maybe when we play a classic course. They say, all right, no tee pegs. You, you place it on the tee and play it. And when you play an 8,000-yard course, then you can tee it up. We need to come up with something to just bring the skill back. That's all I'm saying. Not stopping them hitting it a long way. If you still can hit a dry over 300 when you place the ball on the deck, <laughs> good up to you. Yeah. Because that's real skill. That's real skill. So that's my, my two penneth. My ten minutes on my two seconds. <laughs> Your of soliloquy. Gold. You can come back. You can come back off your soapbox now, Nick. But thank you. We appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nick, I want to chat a little bit about your your rivalries. And I mean, you were fortunate, or I don't know, maybe you were unfortunate enough to play alongside some some epic, epic names. And just off the top of my head, Price, obviously Norman, Sandy Lyle, Ian Wisdom, yeah. Sevi Ballesteros, Sevi, yeah. Langer, Watson, Couples, Nicholas. I mean, these guys were all yeah. in, their, in their prime. Uh, I mean, what was that like? Well, it started with Sevi. You know, when I first joined the tour, and we were both 19, said we were all similar age, as you know, that that band of us. So when I first started, Sevi started already started winning some European events, so he was kind of ahead of me. Um so obviously that was huge that when you went to a tournament, you knew that that man was probably going to win it. So if you wanted to be part of it, that was very simple. You, If I beat Serbia, I'm going to win this tournament. So, you know, that took me a while to get, you know, learn the trade because you come, you know, again from, again from my era, you know, you came with an amateur goal swing and you turned it into a professional goal swing. So there's, there's that learning process when you come on tour to climb the ladder and, you know, and then mentally somebody says, you know, you've got to serve your five-year apprenticeship and you start playing your best golf, you know, at 25 to 35 and then you and you need to be a seasoned campaigner. And you're sowing seeds. You know, you're mature enough to win a major at 30. So sure enough, when I got to 30, I thought, freaking hell, I better win a major now because I'm 30. And I did. So it's classic how... You know, it's, it's like the self-hypnosis where now kids come on tour and they say, well, I'm good enough to win. And guess what? They win. So completely different mindset, the power of the mind again. Yeah. So, um, yes, Sevi was great. So he was the man to beat. You know, I, you play him in match play, because then you really learn. My very first match, they got, they got me an invite into the world match play after I had my Ryder Cup. Because they put me with Sevi first, Matt, and, you know, it, he was impossible to beat. Because he wouldn't be in the hole and then he'd beat you. You're in the middle of the fairway, he's in the trees. And then he'd be up by the side of the green. When a and you'd still got to hit two yeah. on off the green. And yeah, and you'd hit, and because, you know, the holes at Wentworth were long in those days. In winter, and you were hitting two irons, two and three irons into those greens. So sure, you missed the green, 
and you chip up, and you make a five, and, and he's gone trees, trees, bunker, bump in, and he's in another four. And you go, well, where, hell, where the hell was he? <laughs> Didn't see him, but he makes a four, and that's how we'd beat you. So, um, so he was huge for, for the game in European golf and what have you. And and then, um, and then Greg, yes, Greg came over. Yeah, European tour was great in the early days because everybody came to sow the seeds to start off with. Um, Greg came over. I beat Greg. When I won, uh, God, eight, nine, it was 1980 when I won the PGA up again. So I played with Greg, beat him then. Yeah, and then Price, he came over, you're right. And I got on well with Nicky because obviously we then were coached by Ledbetter. So that we played a lot of practice rounds with Pricey, Frosty, uh, Dennis Watson, all those Dale guys. Hayes. Um, no, I, yeah, Hayes. No, funny. I watched, I watched. When I first went to watch golf tournaments, the kid Hazy was playing. I watched him hit the ball and thought, wow. Now, he was a great striker, the golf ball, really strong striker. Um, so I watched him probably at Moore Park, I bet, somewhere before I even played pro events. He was just a little before me. Um, yeah, I got on. And because, you know, I came to South Africa and played the Sunshine Tour. Yeah, I think you won here in 79, um, I said, didn't you? Well, yeah, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my. South African stories because you know I I oh yes yeah, so it's 1975 the end of the year I came down and played the uh, had this thing called the Commonwealth Trophy which was a one-off and I, and they had an individual event and we came down to uh, Cape Town to Mowbray and we played an individual tour and that's where I met Gary for the first time I played a whole with Gary Player um, so he was the first pro I ever played a whole with so he. And I hold a 30-foot putt and he looked at me and and they sort of said, you can putt. I said, yeah, I can putt. You know, like, so, <laughs> um, yeah, so I won that. And then we played the, then we went up to Royal Durban and played the uh, Commonwealth Trophy thing, match play thing. So that was great playing against, oh God, some old, the Canadian boys, I remember some, I kept some friends with them and the amateurs um, when we all, Jeff Hawks and uh, oh, yeah. see some guy Cecil something's from Canada and the Aussie guys are made friends with can't think of their names right now of course um, <laughs> anyway so I met George Bloomberg George and Brenda you know sat with George Uncle George and he then recommended uh, me to to Mark McCormack he yeah. said I've got this young man so I then met Mark McCormack at Birkdale the next year. I played golf with Mark McCormack at Sunningdale like two days after. And I was back in the good old day. And Mark said, um, it was amazing. He said, I, he said to me, I want to make a hundred thousand pounds out of you a year. And then you think, well, that's half a million. Freaking hell, half a million. You know, I'm just paying for two grand. I mean, I mean, I played the whole season. I won 2000 pounds. And this man's saying, you know, he wants to make a hundred thousand out of me. And I'm thinking, freaking hell. And it was the good old days of Mark McCormack. It says, we, we, I have a deal with Arnold Palmer on a handshake. I, all I want to do is shake your hands on a deal. So I did. I had my first deal with Mark McCormack of IMG on a handshake, which was fantastic. And it lasted 20 years because the lawyers then came along. We've got to have a contract. I said, no, I have a handshake with Mark McCormack because then Mark passed and I guess things changed. They were, but it, And I could negotiate my percentages with Mark. Because I remember saying to him years later, because in those days it was, it was either twenty percent on your income, but they, he, he took 
maybe took 20% of your prize money as well or something. And I said to him, I said, hang on a minute. I'm the one holding these putts, mate. You know, <laughs> it's, it's it's, it doesn't matter. You, doesn't matter if you're in my. I know you want me to hold them, but it doesn't help. I've got to hold the putts. And I said, um, I'm gonna. I've got to stop doing that. And he was such a smart man. He said, "That's absolutely fine." He said, "But don't tell anybody." <laughs> so I read. I, my handshake I re- is my legend. <laughs> I read. You know, I renegotiated my deal because because things got good. I'm, I was paying. IMG over a million dollars, you know, their, their percentage, you know, I was making a lot of money a long time ago. So, um, so I remember that I never did that in Jamaica, stood on the balcony. I said, I've got a problem with this, with this prize money thing. He says, that's fine. Just don't tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) So, so don't tell any any other clients. I I did. I kept it a secret. Then uncle George invites me down to come to play the sunshine tour. And we stayed with them in Joburg in their, in their apartment. And off we went to play the sunshine tour. And cause you know, it's the, it was a different, a different world then, wasn't it? You, the, the rand and the prize money was nothing. And the guys would laugh now. It's like pocket money, what we're playing. Cause we used to go to in Joburg. We used to go to the squires laugh and could, we could get a steak and a blue cheese salad and a dessert for like £2.50 equivalent, you know, 10 rand or whatever it was, um, which was hilarious times, great times. And then, um, so you know the funny story about Elephant Hills then? Oh, with Nicky Price. Well, Price, yes. Yeah, so two weeks before Elephant Hills, um, you know, they have a terrorist attack on the golf course. So they cancel the tournament. Uh, and then the week before... They then start calling Uncle George and said, we'd like to invite you up to play. So we think we, it's safe now. So he says, well, Uncle George says, well, we're going. Um, and I said, well, I'll go. I said, I said, I'll go. He said, well, I'll tell you what i do. I'll get them to pay your expenses. So my expenses that week were 130 rand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so my, I, valued, I valued my life at 130 <laughs> rand at that time of my life. So we went up, and that was when Nicky Price arrived in his camouflage kit, you know, jumped off his helicopter and, and put his <laughs> AK-47 behind the desk and yeah. took his golf clubs, and off we went and played. And because um, we played the tournament, I guess Gary won it or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> or did Pricey win it? I can't remember. Did Pricey sure, win it? I can't remember. And I said, yeah, and then I finished fourth. Cause that guy never, I remember that golf course because it was 110 yards short of 8,000 yards because of the altitude, you know, and hot. And so we'd sit on the clubhouse in the morning and the army would come to guard the golf course. And you'd see 100 guys come up the road with a little, little bitty armored vehicle. And then you'd be chatting to somebody and you turn back and they're gone. Poof. And they were all in the bush. They went out in the bush and they were all on, a, on their holes. Because I never forget, you know, I hit a ball in a bush and one hole, and then, and sure enough, a little head would pop up with a gun pointing at you. <laughs> and I'm going, no, no, I'm, I'm a golfer. Look, I'm wearing, I'm wearing a, an Izod shirt. I'm wearing a Lacoste shirt. Look, I'm a golfer. I'm a golfer. So that's just lob, just lob my golfers. ball out for me. Yeah, do a little leather. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in a yellow stripey, ugly polyester shirt. I said, so look, I'm a golfer. So, so um, we've carried on. Anyway, so the, 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 the hilarious bit of the story was because. The week after we left, somebody fired one of those heat-seeking missiles at a plane. It missed the plane and it came down and hit the kitchens, didn't it, at the clubhouse? Went boom. <laughs> so, uh, so that, that was the that was the real world, kids. That's what it was like <laughs> to play golf tournament. That's how we grew up. And I, 
and I won, and I won couple of, couple of grand in rand, and the guys, the older boys, because scared me, they said, "Oh, you have to go to the tax office and pay your tax, otherwise they won't let you out of the country." So we had to file our own tax. We had to go down to and claim. Well, this was my what I won, and these were my expenses. And the guy said, "Okay, man, is it uh, that's." 60 rand tax or something. <laughs> so I paid something stupid like that. A hundred, look, seriously, like 60 quid or 60 rand. I can't remember. Tiny amount. That was my tax. So, because I, because they teased me, they say, oh, you've got to do that. I was the one. They know at the immigration, they won't let you out of the country. Yeah. So, um, so uh, that was, so that was my love for the Sunshine Tour. And then I came back 79. I won there and I loved touring South Africa and playing the tour. It was great. And, uh, and then, of course, Sun City came along yeah. and loved that. Really, that was a great, that really was a great event. 12 man field. That was it. That was the best atmosphere. That was the only small field tournament that had real atmosphere. It was really cool, really good event. And I'm fortunate enough, I won that when they made it a real million dollars to the mm. winner. And, um, and I did well out of that. They did some deal with the Bahutu Swan and government that I only paid. I only paid a ten percent tax on that one. Bargain. Something in the old day. On the old days, they were paying fifty percent tax, but they managed to do something. They called it an exhibition, so it wasn't prize money. Ah, uh, but you know, something. Nick, it's Africa. It's all negotiable. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I did very well out the million dollars. So uh, at that particular time, so and, it was pretty uh, cool. And Nick, uh, perhaps a little known South African related fact is, is that uh, Rene Kurinsky was that was that your your mental coach yeah, back in the was, day when you was, were kind of ahead yeah. of your time, looking at the mental aspect of the game. Yeah, good good point. Yeah, Rennie. Uh, so she watched me practicing at Sun City and I was chipping at the green because I used to try and chip them. She came up and she says, you're the only, she said, what are you trying to do? I said, I'm trying to hold it. She said, right, I'm the only, you're the only golfer I want to talk to. She said, why is that? I said, because you're trying to hold it. I said, so she said to me, well, what are you trying to do on longer shots? You're trying to hold it. And I said, well, no. Said, well, why not? And you're like, well, yeah, well, why not? And so we started hitting wedges and things like, to try and hold them. And if it didn't go in, she used to say, well, why, why didn't that one go in? And she said, you goofed it. She used to say, you goofed it. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. And so that, and so it was so funny. And in that era, you had a lot of tough media, very tough media, you know, in the, where are we? This is, um, well, this is late seventies, eighties. And the media was really tough. And so she was one who taught me the iron chest. We call it the iron chest. So you wear an iron chest. It's like armor, suit of armor. You wore an iron chest. So, so things bounced off your iron chest. And that's how you had to deal with things. Because, you know, it's a different time when, you know, they would, what well, people don't understand that you, they would write a story about you. But in, in those days, that was true media. There was no way of seeing. So if you didn't see the story, and then you you didn't have a, a way to respond to a story. So somebody could write something about me. And, of course, if you didn't see it, you didn't react. So then people thought the story was true, didn't they? So, But then if you read the story and you then said, that's not true about me, the papers loved that because they then would write another story, Wing in Faldo, and it would last, so the story would last three days. So that, so people did believe what they read in the papers at that time. So I, you know, I got a reputation and what have you and um 
because of the way I did things or whatever, or maybe I was an arse. I'm sure I was an arse at things. But, you know, if you're, if you're a determined sportsman, you have to have some kind of attitude, don't you? Yeah. So, um, uh, so you know, I, I got that reputation. And so she, had, she taught me how to let that just bounce off me. So, and so number one, I didn't read the story. So, and so now if you read a story and you don't like, you know, go, you can get on Twitter five seconds later and actually give the true, your, your version of the true story, which usually quashes a story because men, you know, you can't, you know, they used to absolutely flat out make up a story. There was no fact to it at all. And it would go out there and um, you couldn't do anything. There's no recourse. So very different times, very different times to now. So, um, so I always felt that the, the mission of the media was to make me look bad you know, they had Sandy Lyle, they deemed as the, the good guy and what have you, and I was the bad guy. So they, you know, they would, if they were going to write a story about me, they made, wanted to make you look bad. And they went to a tournament. I had, a, I was then told, it was so funny, 90, so it, it, this lasted a long time, it didn't, obviously, my whole career. So it, in the early 90s, I went, so 1991, you know, my game, because I've won two majors in 90, right? And I've started 91 badly. So they actually sent writers to write Faldo's Finished, okay, to Ireland, when we went to Ireland, to um, Kalani. And one of my press guys who liked me said, watch out, you've got a guy here following. And this guy would follow me everywhere. And, of course, I wasn't – and, of course, you arrive at a goal – at the. I'm never, it's so funny, I arrived at the clubhouse one day, and I didn't have any ID. And because the guy didn't want to let me in because I didn't have ID, perfectly right. And so this guy's five yards behind me. And so that was the story. Founders banned from the clubhouse because he doesn't have ID. So that started it off. And I, so I knew this guy was there. So bottom line is I won the tournament. <laughs> so I said, so now go and write. Founders finished. I just, I just won. So that was key. And they, and they would deem that, well, that was good for you. Part of your motivation, you know, make you, you know, you're like, what the load of rollocks that is. And to my own fault, um, I, I believe playing golf because it worked for me then. It, you know, as I said, the knowledge I had then was to head down blinkers on and and plow forward, and and that was my style. And um, and bottom line, don't get in my way, sort of attitude. And now, you know, my friend Shell, that I talked about, said, "God, with your mental strength, I had this great ability to be completely engrossed in what I was doing. So I could have taught you to switch in and out. So I could have engaged with." the gallery more and people more and then got back to the bag and had a switch and gone into back into golf mode. But I didn't know that then it was like the way to play golf was to freaking isolate everybody. And, and, you know, I did have that ability there that you didn't hear people talk to you. So when people said, I said to him, hello, Nick. And, you know, and he didn't respond. He go, miserable bastard. He didn't. Well, I actually, if I didn't hear you, because of my ability, I didn't hear you. Yeah. So that's how people could then get the impression that, oh, what a miserable bastard is. I said hello to him and he didn't react. Well, I actually didn't hear you because I had this enviable quality of being able to be totally engrossed in something. But, you know, it gets you a reputation. And so they, you know, think you're an ass. Nick, we're going we're to wrap it up uh, pretty soon, but just want to pick out a few sort of seminal moments in, in your career. And, and there's no doubt that the 96 Masters obviously stands out as, as one of those big stories, the, the comeback from six shots behind uh, Greg Norman going to the final round, uh, shooting 67 to 78 on the final day, and and then a touching moment on the final green. I mean, your thoughts looking back on that now, uh, 
uh, all these years later? Yeah, it was amazing, amazing week. So I arrived and um, what was used to start on the back nine on Sunday, we used to sneak out there with, you know, with Fanny Sooner, and and I sky my T-shirt on the 10th hole. I said, oh, freaking hell. So play the hole out. And then I get on to 11th, sky my T-shirt again and play the hole out. And I didn't remember. And Fanny said, do you, do you remember what happened? I said, no. She said, we walked in. I walked in from the 11th on Sunday back to the practice ground. I thought, sod this. And so I, because my transition was too hard. Everybody's walking past me going, it's too fast. Too... And actually, Jerry Pate said, yeah, gave you the tough. Soft. It's got to be soft. How soft? So I started, how soft could I, my transition to be back and super soft. And so I coined it. The funny bit was my daughter, Georgia, what year is this? It's 96. So little Georgia's, um, oh, Georgia's young. So Georgia's only three. Yeah, so That's Georgia's right. yeah, only she's three, three years, years old. old. Telling you the age of your yeah, kid. So Georgia's I three. So, Georgia's, my, so my little daughter, Georgia's really into the Powerpuff Girls. Remember they were, remember those, those, those um, I'm ashamed to that, say yes. <laughs> they were, yeah, they were called the Powerpuff Girls. I do remember. So I... So I coined the phrase, I was power puffing it. That was me. I was so that was the funny image of I'm a, I'm a I'm literally how soft can I hit this golf ball? Right? So then the funny bit was who do I get drawn with day one? John Daly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have to do So I see the funny so luck, I guess fortunate I can see the funny side. So I get John Daly trying to rip it and kill it and crush it, whatever you used to say. Um Grip it and rip, rip it. it. And so he's rip trying to hit it. it as hard as he can. He's trying to hit it as hard as he can. I'm trying not to hurt the golf ball. You know, I'm pretending it's a soap bubble and just a boop. Can I? Well, anyway, so I shot 69, which was really great round. So, you know, that golf course was already tough. So that was, you know, and people think Greg shot 63. So people think, oh, you're six back. Uh, six back off the day one. But it was a great round. That was a good start. And I think I shot... I assume I shot 67 the next day. That's why we were then leading. We played together day day three. And then I, I had a really bad shot at um, 16. I pushed a nine iron into that bunker right, took a four, shot 73, and I came in. And, of course, you know, press, you go to the press quickly, and I wanted to go hit some balls, and they, and they said, you know, you're six back. And I'm like, yeah, that's nothing. It's no problem. So just, <laughs> yeah. you know, just saying it. So I went to the range, hit some balls, and sort of found it again. So, okay, so 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 fine. So then the next morning, you know, it dawned on me, and I went, okay, six back is is actually nothing because we've. I said, just got to get within three. If I get within three after nine, I said I'm in it because we any we've seen anybody win it or lose it from three with three shots on the back nine. It's nothing, Augusta. So. And I was pretty relaxed about it. Actually, it was funny. I sort of set the game plan. That that was my goal. And so funny. I was even so relaxed. I even called my mum on Sunday morning, which I rarely would do. And and, and I, she must have said, "I said I'm all right. You know, six back, no problem, sort of thing." So, and off I and and I was busy watching NASCAR on TV, and then the, not watching. I went, "Oh shoot, I've got to go to the club." And so off <laughs> I went, and I arrived there. It's so funny, and I always used to arrive an hour and 20 minutes and do the putting thing first and then do a big loop around the practice ground because it was the old practice ground then across the, just in front of the clubhouse. So you'd putt, 
hit balls, gun chip, back to putt, first tee. So I arrive and Fanny's eyeballs are about the size of saucers. saucers. She said, oh, you got 57 minutes. I went, yeah, I'm all right. We're fine. It was probably good for me because I didn't have time to think about it. Got on with it and go to the first tee. And I and Greg, bottom line, he bogus the first. So, that, okay, there's one. And then we went, got on the second tee. And that was when I famously, so Greg starts gripping it. 10 times before he hit it. And I went, oh, that's different. Uh, but he made a really good four. We both made really good fours down two. And can't remember three. And then fourth, he clunks a four iron into that front bunker. So there's another one. Uh, I bogeyed I bogeyed five. But we were hitting two iron into the fifth green then. <laughs> so I hit it, actually hit the green because it went off back left into the bunker and I made five. But then six was really key. Six was the big moment because, you know, the famous pin back right. Yeah. It was, that's what, it, you know, that was the real barometer. Your yardstick, for, I hit a six iron in there, six foot behind the hole, right behind it. I made two. So that made me go, well, I'm all right. So, and then I made it hold a very lucky putt kind of on the eighth from about 20. I chipped it, left it short, 25 feet, and then hold it. And then it all started to happen, as you know. Then Greg makes the big mistake at nine. Um, you know, you dish that flag, you just gotta go long. And anyway, but then ten was ten was the real giveaway. Ten he had an eight iron and he pulls it and then jams the chip shot and misses the putt. And I thought and then I thought, okay, now he's in trouble. Well, he's thinking about it. But you still gotta play. I mean, it's not like you still gotta play eleven, which is two really tough shots in those yeah. and we were hitting five irons we hitting five irons into 11 I think maybe it was a little shorter maybe it was a little shorter this year and he three putts it doesn't it so crumbs and then we get on the 12th team we're tied so and so I, that was the most nervous because I that was like match play and I thought aim left of the flag hit chip to seven come with chipping seven irons in those days chip to seven iron left of the flag you know, I made a real kind of, you know, clunky swing, but it was good enough. And then because he stands up. And I think what happens in your mind is you cannot change your mind at number 12. If you make a decision, I'm going left, you have to aim, you have to have the yardage left, play left. Yeah. And you can't then mid-swing think, oh, that flag looks so presentable. You know, I'll change, I'll go for it. And I think that's what kind of like aim safe, but then go for the flag because then you don't have enough club. Mm. That's why you come up mm. short. And so then I walk off and I go, oh, I go, oh, shit, it's now mine to lose. <laughs> I'm now, I did. I said, I'm now two shot lead. I thought, oh, geez. So then we had the famous, the famous second shot at 13. So the funny story is I've had, I put a five one in the bag, little persimmon five wood, and I could hit that thing 215 yards like clockwork. Okay. So in every practice round, would drop a ball on the par fives at 2.15 and I'd hit this five wood in the middle of the green, right, in all the practice rounds. And, of course, we haven't used it at all. And then there we are. I've got 2.15 to the middle of the green. I had 2.08 to the front, so 2.15 is perfect. So I get the five wood out and I go and put this. And, no, and that sole plate was dead flat. Remember the old brass sole plate yeah. and those things? Yeah. Yes. Dead, dead flat. So I put it on that slope and it's, it's a difficult so the ball's above your feet, yet you're on a downhill lie. Nightmare. So it's got that much twist. It's like playing off the banking of bloody Daytona. <laughs> so I put this 
thing down, and it literally went, uh, it went rhododendrons left, creek right, rhododendrons left, creek. I kept adjusting it, you know, it kept pointing left, right, left, and I thought, like, shit, I don't know if I went. So I always used to go back to the bag and say to Fan, I used to say, I'm all right, I'm all right, you know. I said, but start again. I don't like that. That thing's not right. I'm all right. So she said, what do you want to do? I said, I still want to go for it. And I said, I've got 208. And we'd even calculated. I said, if I if I come up short, there's no water in the creek. I could end up on sand. I even thought about if it didn't get there, it would be on sand in the creek and I'd yeah. be fine. I didn't want to go long. Just don't want to go long. So I said, okay, I think that's all right. So anyway, that took freaking five minutes, you know, so... Um, <laughs> So I then nailed, so I nailed the two iron, didn't I? Nailed that two iron into the middle of the green. So that was pretty awesome. And because Greg wanted to have a go off the pine needles, he got talked out of it, and he made a great four. So we're still two. We made good fours up the next, and then the famous chips at uh, fifteen. You know, he nearly holds his chip shot, and I had a really difficult little chip shot. And we'd worked on this little chip shot of almost like a professional stab. You really. I got 99% of my weight on my left foot and I let you pick it up and drop it with a wedge and it, and it would, so the first kick, you needed a good, you needed a good bounce, first bounce, because you, it would land into the grain, so you needed a bit of power, then you wanted it to hop and land on the green and then just die and then just fall. And I got that mastered through the week, obviously, so I gave that one a lovely little stab pop, so I made easy work of that. That's what the commentator said anyway. So knocked that up to three feet, made <laughs> that not one. The, not that and, then, and then um and then sixteen was another nervy one, was like bust a six iron into the middle of the green. Cause I just aimed middle of the green and ripped it. And then cause then Greg pulls it and boom. Now I've got four shot lead. So that was it. And I and we both had chances on seventeen and eight. And I kept saying to myself, all I want is four shots. Just give me four shots going up the last. I know I can. And sure enough, I had four shots coming up the last and uh, just hit it on the green. Because then, you know, when you're in that daze, you just look at that, look at the putt and hit it because it goes in. And um, and that was it. And so, you know, the real story of the hug was I said to him, look, I don't know what to say, mate, because I, I would have been scarred for life if I'd blown a six-shot lead. Mm. And I just said, look, I feel for I feel for you, mate. I feel for you. And so I gave him a hug. And that was um, uh, as simple as that. It really was as simple as that. You know, a lot of people come to me and say, did you win one or four Opens and was one at Burtdale? You know, and I go, but they all all go, oh, 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 you and Greg, 96 Masters. They get all the facts right. And I love that. So it's obviously wonderful for me because... I get I get reminded of that every month. The airport I haven't been through airports, but normally when you go through airports, everybody, somebody will say, "Oh, I watched that Master '96. Oh, that was that got me started." Or into even the Aussies say, "You know, oh, I watched it. Didn't want you to win, mate, but bloody hell, you were great." So it's really obviously it's a huge kick for me. Can't be very nice for Greg. Yeah, but, geez, he was um, unlucky. But yeah, he was. Yeah, but it's, um, yeah, he should have won a couple of miles. He played the wrong freaking ball, didn't he, years ago? He played that spinny ball, was coming off the blooming greens and all that sort of thing. And, and um, but, you know, that's our sport. We know where the finish line is, isn't it? We know the finish line's on the 72nd green. And some guys choke on the first, some guys choke on Tuesday, some on Thursday, some struggle through the weekend. I mean, we all have our choking point, don't we? So, um, 
but we know that's the beauty of our our game. We know where the where the as I said, red finishing lines on that seventy second green, and so you've got to get yourself there to uh, survive it all. Nick, uh, lastly, it's been a, a long career, both on the golf course and off. Any regrets? No, you always have. Yeah, you always have them, but you know you have to say. And you'd always do things differently. My goodness, when you, there's so many things you'd say, God, I wish I... But the only way I can console that is to say, look, at, in the, with the knowledge I had then, I did the best I could, and I always gave 100%. I pride myself that I gave, I gave 100%. I, the funny bit is I, I threw the towel in once, threw the towel in twice, I believe, um, once on a golf course we were in spain it was horrendous back in the good old european days of the tour you know and it was really crap and then there was another one i was playing crap i was tired in way 1983 i was really tired after the open after blowing the open and i'm playing i threw the towel in i was a couple over threw the towel in and i started so i birded a couple of holes to make the cut then i shot 64, 62, and won the tournament. <laughs> so I learned, a, so you learn a lesson that Jesus, you know, just as I pride myself, as I said, I didn't, never threw the towel. Then at one time I did, I still won. So I think that's quite funny. But, you know, I think that's important for kids to, it's a, it's a great lesson to give 100%. And I've always tried to do that. And they, and you're the only, and your other lesson you learn is you, the only person you can judge you is you. And, you know, if you've left work, whatever it is, at, you know, six o'clock in the evening and say, oh, I did a bloody good day's work today. And if somebody's saying you didn't, well, who cares? If, you, you, if you're an honest judge of yourself, um, that's all you can do. So that's what I've, uh, that's my little mottos in life. And the other, you know, the other simple one is if you can fix it, you, you fix it. If you can't do it, if you can't solve a problem, you leave it. You have to forget it. You have to learn to forget it, you know. So that's keep things simple, and uh, that's kind of what I do now. I mean, and the the other great thing about golf is the great thing is, um, which is tough to deal with when you stop, is it's so easy to set goals because you know just hitting a golf shot is a goal. You know, even on the range, even on the range, you're standing there with with any club and going, "Oh, I want to hit this wedge to a foot, or I want to hit this drive over that flag." That's a goal, isn't it? And obviously, when you get on the golf course, it's very easy. Every shot is a goal. I want to hit that fairway. I want to hit the there, 10 feet. I want to hold this putt. And the hardest thing I found was when you stop golf is, so what's your goal? Huh. And, then, and then you get, obviously, you get, a, you get a reaction. You get a feedback to every single goal, don't you? If you're trying to hit a three iron to 10 feet right at the flag, if you hit it four feet, fantastic. If you hit it 104 feet, well, there's your reaction. You, um, you learn from it, don't you? And the hardest thing is when you stop playing golf is, so what's my goal today? Hmm, have a nice day. So what the freaking hell is have a nice day? <laughs> Who judges have a nice day? You know, and, and, and have I, how do I have a nice day? <laughs> yeah. And so that, you know, and that's, that's quite tough. And, and, in, and in the television world that I've been in now is, so who judges you when you've done a day's work? Nobody calls you up and goes, oh, that was great. You were great Good today. job. Yeah, I think, um, in, the, I think know, in, the broad, it, in the broadcasting it, world, it, as we've kind of learned, it's just, if they don't say anything, just assume that you are doing a good job. It's when you start hearing from people yeah, that you're actually yeah, yeah, you, You're right. You usually hear now that what you can't say, you can't say this, you can't say that. 
and then you need, they don't like this and don't like that. So we haven't had too much of that, to be honest. But you're right. I'd rather some. I like it when a producer goes, "I oh, love it, love that great star. Keep that going. Bit more of this, and then they, then they, then you keep the energy up. You know, usually last hour or something. Golf goes very quiet. Come on, energy up, and you, you're good. And that. So that's cool having somebody like that. But but generally, you walk out the TBA tower and go, "Okay, so what was that all about?" Sort of thing. Yeah. And I go, "Well," and I go. I come back and I go, I did a good day. I thought I was good today. I thought I was funny, fast, you know, informative. Okay, I did a good day, but nobody says boo. And it's like, oh, it's freaking hard work if that goes on week after week after day. Mm-hmm. No, that's so you, it's tough to judge yourself. And that's, as I said, if you, you can have a lot of pride, kids, if you know you gave 100% each day. It's really important. Give 100% to everything you're doing because then, you you really do learn because if if you fail and go well, I didn't really give an ass, <laughs> then yeah. guess what? You know. Well, then it's you on you. Try to do. Yeah, exactly. It's on you, hundred percent. Well, there's plenty of people who unfortunately think like that. You know, they think it should come easy to them or what have you. But um, well, I don't think anyone um, can ever accuse you of of not giving hundred percent. And I was just listening to you talk for the past hour and a half. It's absolutely flown by. Yeah. I think I think Peter Jacobson was right. I think uh, you could well be the funniest Englishman since John Cleese. <laughs> the long and short of it. They did well. Climbed just to the top of the bank, rolls down towards it. I don't believe it. He's hold it. It's a two to finish with. That suddenly takes him to five under par in a round of 67 and probably more important to Faldo, just one behind Norman. How's it look, John? Looks right at the flag. It's just a matter of how far it carries. That might hit the highlight reels. <laughs> the winner of the gold medal and the champion golfer for the year with a score of 270, Nick Faldo. up on the next episode of The Long and Short of It. Africa is in your blood. There's something that's hard to explain to somebody in America, for example. But what would I have done? Would I, well, I would have won more major championships. When you practice and dedicate yourself to something like that, golf was the big thing of my life. Such an integral part of my life, and I worked so hard and made so many sacrifices. There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.